You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. ...journal that contains the Gospel of Luke. Will you grab that and turn to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22. And if you're joining us for worship today and you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. You'll find some Bibles on the tables in the back of the room, and you can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today, and that's our gift to you. Uh, we just want you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read on your own. I'm going to ask you if you are willing and able to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The text on which today's teaching is based is Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 27. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. So listen carefully to these words from Luke 22, verses 14 to 27. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you... I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup... After they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I imagine that you, like me, a uh, bit distracted this morning, right? A little bit of an unusual day for us all. So I'm going to stop and pray again and just pray that the Lord would give us an ability, a supernatural ability, to be attentive to the preaching of His Word this morning. Can we pray one more time? Father, we do ask You to be with us now. We believe that You have an incredibly important message for us today. Because once again, we gather as Your people to open Your Word. And every time we do that, You indeed have an incredibly important message for us. So while we continue to pray for Miss Nancy, and for her healing, and everything that she needs... We pray as well, God, that you would give us the ability to be attentive to your word today. I pray that as I preach, the seed would fall on good soil. That you would transform and work in hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So for quite a while we've been looking at Luke's gospel. We started this study way back in Christmas of last year. So four months or now, we've been studying this gospel, journeying with Jesus. 
from his birth through his adolescent years, through his early 30s, the roughly three years of his earthly ministry that took place in his early 30s. And now we've come to the final week in the life of Jesus, the final week of his earthly ministry. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 19 where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. And from chapter 19, verse 28, all the way to the end of this book, the end of this gospel in chapter 24, all of that covers only one week. A week that has become known as Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the most important week in the life of the most important person who ever lived. Now last week in Luke 19, as Jesus enters Jerusalem... It's the Sunday prior to Easter Sunday. Today, as we look at Luke 22, this event will happen on Thursday of the same week. Let me set the scene for you. It's Thursday night. Jesus gathers with his 12 closest followers, his apostles, in a room that has been prepared for a very special meal. This is the Last Supper. The last meal that Jesus will share with his apostles before he is crucified. It's the last supper, but in another way, it's the first supper. Because this meal is the beginning of the Lord's Supper, communion. The feast of forgiveness that has been observed throughout the centuries and around the world. The very feast of forgiveness that we have celebrated each week of the Lenten season and that we will celebrate again today. This entire scene happens around the king's table. And on the one hand, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. But on the other, it's a dreadful scene. I want us to study this passage together under three headings. Noticing, first, the memory of the table. Second, the treachery at the table. And third, the vainglory that is all around the table. So that's where we're going today. The memory, the treachery, and the vainglory. First, the memory of the table. Look at verse 14. Notice what's happening here. When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So the occasion for this meal, and we'll talk about where the meal is happening in a moment, but the occasion is the Passover. Now we need to think all the way back to the very beginning of the biblical story, to the book of Genesis and especially to Exodus to understand the context of this meal and why it's so important. In the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the biblical story, God chose a man named Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham, a promise to him. A threefold promise. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants, that his descendants would form a great nation, that they would one day have a great land, and thirdly, that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. We journey through Genesis and we come to Exodus. Exodus picks up the story of God's people some 400 years later, and part of that promise to Abraham has come true. Abraham did indeed have many descendants, but they don't yet have a land. They don't yet have a land. In fact, 
They're living as slaves. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And so God calls, raises up a man named Moses. And he sends Moses to the Pharaoh of Egypt. The Pharaoh is a tyrant who thinks his power is supreme. God sends Moses to the Pharaoh, telling the Pharaoh that he must let God's people go. But of course the Pharaoh says, no, no, you don't know my power. You don't know my power. And so God decides to show the Pharaoh who truly possesses supreme power. He sends a series of plagues. You probably know the stories if you grew up going to Sunday school. He sends a series of plagues on the Egyptians. The final plague is the one that is most important to understand, to understand the context of this Passover feast. In the final plague, God is going to pour out his judgment on all of the Egyptians, but he provides specific instructions for how his people will be spared from the judgment. They're to take a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the door of their home. And if they do that, God's judgment will pass over the home. We read God's instructions in the book of Exodus chapter 12 verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This act of deliverance, the liberation of God's people, this profoundly shaped their memory. Every year at the Feast of Passover, they celebrated this event, the Exodus, the great intervention of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. Annually, God people would remember this event. See, the, the language of memory is scattered throughout this first part of the passage. So on this night, when Jesus gathers with his 12 closest followers, this is exactly what they are remembering. They're remembering the Passover from the days of the Exodus. They're gathered, we're told, in an upper room. Now that tells us that this homeowner, whoever it is, and we don't know who owned the home, but it must have been someone of means. Because the typical home in this particular location and time was a two-story home, but it only had one room. This home has an upper room where they gather. So this must have been a wealthy person who opens their home for Jesus and the apostles. They gather in this upper room and the standard setup for a meal of this nature would have been three tables, or couches rather, benches that people could sit on. They would have been formed in an upside down U shape. And in the center would have been a shorter table where the food and the drink was placed. So there they are, seated together. This feast of the Passover had very specific elements, a particular ritual that was to be followed. But on this night, Jesus changes the ritual. He changes the meaning and the memory of this meal that had been celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now you have to understand how astounding this would have been. Imagine if you are going to your grandmother's 90th birthday party. For decades your family has gathered to celebrate the matriarch of the family. And Granny's favorite cake is red velvet. Who doesn't love a good red velvet, right? 
And so this year, like all the other years before, the red velvet cake is placed right at the center of the table. And the whole family gathers. And just before singing happy birthday and cutting the cake, someone says, this year, we're not celebrating granny. In fact, from this day forward, every time we eat red velvet cake, we're not celebrating granny. We're remembering and giving thanks for one, for something that is even greater. Now, if that happened, you would be astonished, right? You would be shocked. You would think, we're doing what? We're doing what? Now, that's not exactly what happens here in the upper room, but it's similar enough. And I want you to see just how shocking it would have been when Jesus says what he says next. He takes the traditional elements from the Passover meal and look at what he says. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body. Wait a minute, Jesus wasn't there during the Exodus, was he? Way back in Egypt? This isn't supposed to be about him, right? This is my body, he says. Which is given now for you. Do this... In remembrance of me. Changing the whole memory of the event. And likewise the cup. After they had eaten saying. This cup that is poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. You see what he's doing? He's taking the traditional elements. That would have recalled the liberation of God's people. The exodus. And now he's saying these things. Point to me. They remind you of me and what I am doing for you. Jesus is showing us that he is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is showing us that it will be his blood applied to the door of your life that will save you and me from the judgment of God. The righteous judgment that all sinners and rebels deserve. It's the blood of Jesus applied to us through faith, through believing in Him. That is what will save us from our sins. Jesus is showing His apostles that He is about to pour out His life. He is going to pour out everything for them and for us. It's a beautiful scene. A beautiful scene indeed. But it's immediately followed. This self-giving of the Son of God is immediately followed by self-service, treachery. Look at the second part of the passage. But behold, Jesus says, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table even now. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And the disciples, the apostles, they all began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now when Jesus says that, of course he knows who the traitor is. He's the son of God. He knows everything. But the other disciples around the table, they don't know, they don't yet know the face of the traitor. And so they all begin to question each other, who could it be? Is it I? Is it you? Who is it? By this stage in Luke's gospel, the plan to betray Jesus is well underway. 
earlier in the chapter, the same chapter at the very beginning. Luke tells us how it started. Verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. It's a complex cocktail of influences. It begins with the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. At this stage, they are settled. They will destroy Jesus. Now, why such hatred? Well, on the one hand, they were jealous of his popularity. Everywhere Jesus went, the crowds followed him. Additionally, these religious leaders of the day, they were offended by Jesus' ministry. But most importantly, they failed to see his true identity. They did not have eyes to see that Jesus is Savior, Lord, King. In their eyes, Jesus was nothing more than a religious and political revolutionary. And he had to be dealt with. But they needed help. They needed a way of getting to Jesus. They needed an inside man, an informant, someone who could tell them where Jesus was going to be so that they could capture him quietly without causing a riot. After all, Jesus was incredibly popular. So Satan provides the help they need. You remember back in Luke chapter 4? Jesus defeated Satan already. In the wilderness, the story of the temptations... Jesus defeated the power of darkness. But how did that story end? It ended by saying, And Satan, the devil, departed, not forever, but until the opportune moment. See, all throughout Luke's gospel, Satan has been lurking in the shadows. He could not defeat Jesus, so he goes after Jesus' closest followers. He captures the heart of one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, and Judas provides the chief priests and the scribes exactly what they need. He will give them the intel. He will let them know when and where they can arrest Jesus. You know, one of the great mysteries of the Gospels is what exactly motivated Judas. We know a little. We don't know everything. We're not quite sure exactly why he did this. We can piece some things together and it seems that Judas was a lover of money. John's gospel tells us that he was the treasurer of this group of disciples. And he sometimes helped himself to the money bag. So it would seem that his greed gets the best of him. He was not a true lover of Jesus. He was a lover of money. And so he sells Jesus for a few pieces of silver. There's a lesson for us here, and it's not just a lesson about greed. I want you to notice that as they gather around the table, the disciples do not automatically look to, G to Judas. And that tells us that Judas must have hidden his intentions pretty well. So there's no suggestion in the Gospels 
that when the disciples went out with Jesus, when they followed him from here to there, when they listened to his teaching, perhaps when they taught themselves, or when they worked some of the miracles with Jesus, there's no suggestion that Judas was less powerful than the others, less important than the others. There's no suggestion that Judas's demons wouldn't be cast out when everyone else's would. Nothing like that. So on this night when Jesus says, the hand of the betrayer is here on the table, everyone doesn't look automatically at Judas. He hid his intentions well. You can look just like a follower of Jesus. You can sit at the table with him. And your heart can be far, far from him. There's a warning for us here. If this can happen to one of the twelve, it could happen to any one of us. The devil, Satan, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be on guard. Be on guard. Now when we hear this story, we tend to think of Judas as the traitor, right? The treacherous one. But as we keep reading in this story, we learn that it wasn't just Judas. Every one of the twelve, they're all treacherous. They all betray the Lord's basic kingdom message. Look at how this passage ends. It ends with vainglory. Vainglory all around the table. Notice this connection between verses 23 and 24. They began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Who's the traitor? Who could it be? And then in the very next verse, notice how the conversation devolves. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It's not hard to see how this might have played out. They're talking amongst each other. Who would possibly betray our Lord? From that side of the room, someone says, Certainly, I would never do that. We all know that I am Jesus' favorite. I could never betray my Lord in that way. And then from the other side of the room, What do you mean you're his favorite? I spend the most time with him. He always comes to me when he needs help. And then a thunderous cry from the back of the room, You're all fools. This whole gang would fall apart without me. I am the greatest. And so now the conversation has shifted. Who is the greatest? Who is the most important disciple? They've all betrayed Jesus at this point. They've betrayed his most basic kingdom message. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has taught and modeled humility. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And now all of his disciples are arguing about which of them should have the highest horse. They betrayed the most basic kingdom message. And so Jesus looks to them again with love and unparalleled patience. And again he teaches them. Because these disciples, just like us, prone to forget. Prone to wander. And so Jesus responds... The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, brothers. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? 
In the eyes of the world, is it not the one who reclines at table? But I, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, true greatness is service. Humility. The disciples were obsessed with their selves. They wanted titles. They wanted to know who is the greatest. And Jesus says, no. You should be as the youngest and as one who serves. In these days, age brought advantage. So to be the youngest is to be the one who has no advantage. No social standing. No privileges in life. And to be as the one who serves, well, that's exactly what it sounds like. It means that you're no longer obsessed with yourself. You're no longer looking for opportunities to become famous and important and to have more authority. No, you're looking for ways to serve others. You're asking questions like, what else can I give up? How can I become more loving, more generous? You're others-oriented, not self-seeking. The disciples are interested in titles. Who's the greatest? They want a title. Jesus, in essence, hands them a towel and says, go and serve. True greatness is service. So go and serve with a foot-washing heart. That's true greatness. Jesus concludes this scene by saying, I am among you as the one who serves. It's the reason the Son of God came. He came to serve, to seek, and to save the lost. To seek and to save the treacherous. Like these disciples. Like you and me. Because whether we care to admit it, we're just like them. In C.S. Lewis's powerful, powerful story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the young boy in the story named Edmund is a traitor. In fact, the reader is not supposed to like Edmund at all. We learned this at the very beginning. Edmund is a brat of a child. He's greedy for recognition. He's jealous of his older brother, Peter. Edmund wants to be the greatest in the family. And when he discovers the magical land of Narnia, he's enticed by the dark magic there. He sides with the villain of the story, the White Witch. Beguiled by the witch's promises, Edmund betrays his family. He betrays the kind creatures of Narnia. Of course, the witch doesn't intend to honor her promises. She's using the boy for her own selfish and evil purposes. But Edmund can't see it. At a key moment in the story, the white witch has Edmund in her possession. And she's about to kill him. Prepare the victim, she says. And suddenly, Aslan's army arrives. To rescue Edmund from the witch's knife, Aslan is the great lion, the Christ figure in the story, if you're not familiar with it. So now that Aslan has arrived, Edmund is safe, right? Or is he? Not long after this, the white witch comes to Aslan's camp looking for Edmund. You have a traitor there, Aslan, she says. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that for every treachery I have a right to a kill. That human creature belongs to me. He is mine, the witch says. His life is forfeit 
to me. His blood is my property. And that's when Aslan, the great lion, steps forward and says, Then kill me, witch. Kill me. I will die in the traitor's stead. Oh, friends, don't you see? That's what Jesus did for you. That's what He did for me. Kill me, witch. Kill me. I will die in the traitor's stead. Each and every one of us, like the disciples, we're prideful, self-seeking, treacherous. And Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross to pour out everything. I will die in the traitor's stead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice of your life in our place for our sins. We confess this morning that we can be just like those disciples were so long ago. We can be seated so close to you and yet be so far from your teaching, so far from what it means to be a true follower. Forgive us. Forgive us for our pride, our vainglory. And thank you for your sacrifice. In you and in you alone, we have forgiveness. Forgiveness of our past, present, even our future sin. We are never beyond the reach of your grace. We celebrate, give thanks for, and meditate on that wonderful truth of the gospel this morning as we prepare our hearts to come to your table. In Jesus' name.